Just so you know, this teaching series is going to take us up to Easter Sunday. And then after Easter, we're going to start into a new, a brand new series uh, called The Holy Spirit and Spiritual Gifts. And we're going to be taking a serious and close look at what the scripture teaches when it comes to uh, the person of the Holy Spirit and his work and ministry among us in the local church. And then the gifts that the Bible speaks about and, and where that comes from. And we're also going to be uh, looking and hopefully engaging with some of the, uh, you know, the more controversial parts as well, where Christians um, historically have, have come to different positions regarding them. So we're going to be looking at them and asking, what does the Bible teach? And then how should we respond as a church and in our practice and in our lives as individual believers in Christ? Um, so that's going to be after, after Easter. And um, what, I, what I've said to some of you, maybe uh, one-to-one, is that if you have any, any specific questions about the topic of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I, mean, I would find it really helpful, actually, if you just come and share those with me or text me or something, um, because it would be really helpful rather than me sort of talking about stuff that you don't really need to know about or want to know about, uh, you know, to, to engage with some of your questions and expectations and, and experiences perhaps in the past as well. Um, so I would love to have that forewarned as forearmed. So uh, if, you, if you have any questions or any just comments, then uh, please chat to me or fire them to me electronically somehow or other, and um, that will just help. And I'll address some of those things as we go through that teaching series after Easter. Let's come back and uh, look at James chapter 4 in our series called Real Religion. Um, and James is very, very careful as he goes through this entire letter to all the churches that he, he writes to, uh, to distinguish, on one hand, the real religion uh, of Jesus uh, and his teachings and his person, his works, and, and, and as expounded and explained by the, by the apostles, uh, the religion that, that takes the work of Christ into our hearts and, and lives off of that, as we've been trying to do every Sunday here. Um, there's that, real religion. But then James is distinguishing that, not from unbelief or sort of non-religion outside or pagan religion or whatever, other religions, but he's trying to distinguish that from a, a fake kind of religion, a, a false religion. Not the one that exists out there, uh, outside the church, but the sort that exists in here, among us. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody this morning, but the sort that in general affects churches up and down the country and across the globe, where people look Christian and sound Christian and turn up to Christian churches and do Christian things. And yet, as James is showing, there is there's great danger in, 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 uh, in the fake religion. It will not uh, give you the strengths and the, uh, the tools you need to go through suffering. It will not provoke you to joy. It will not provoke you to generosity and a radical spirit. Um, and so bit by bit, James is just sort of dissecting those two forms of Christian religion, so to speak. And so we get to this stage now uh, where <clears throat> um, the subject that he is looking at then is how we view the future and particularly how we view our own future. Um, and as we'll hopefully see as we go through, how you view the future and, and, and uh, the sort of levels of anxiety that you have regarding your own future uh, will be one of the other things that will show you are, you, are you. are you following the real religion or are you following a fake version that has no resources available uh, to prepare for the future? So let's look and see. Um, I think it's probably fair to say that, that there, there is a pressure in general to have a plan for the future uh, when you grow up we'll say to children, what do you want to be? 
and uh, our kids will, will sometimes say sensible things and sometimes, you know, uh, not very sensible. Sometimes they might actually be uh, the, the astronaut or they might end up playing for, for Liverpool or whatever. Um, but being the kids, even, you know, in the, in the early years, what do you want to be in the future? What do you hope for? And, and that, of course, that philosophy continues uh, as, we, as we send our, our children off to school to prepare them for the future. And then uh, as we become ourselves young adults and go off to you know, senior school and then university or college or whatever uh, form or into, into the world of work, it's all about setting ourselves up and prepping for the future. When we get to adult life, quite often, uh, not always, but quite often, uh, our career and our career hopes and aspirations are carefully planned out for us. There's a, there's a clear um, pathway that we have crafted out, that we've mapped for ourselves. And the aim with all this, of course, um, is that uh, we, we, we hope for a life that is, that is comfortable, uh, that we are prepared, and, and there's no big surprises, no, no uh, coming off the rails. And that's why we take such um, care in, in thinking of the future, and including adverts, of course, that we see on TV, which sort of uh, lean on this, this, uh, this inbuilt concern or anxiety for a good future, for a prosperous future, you know, um, particularly around the subject of life insurance and, and, and various forms of insurance, should the worst happen. That's the, that's the phrase, isn't it, that gets dropped in. Should the worst happen? It plays on our fears. Oh, no, what if the worst happens and my, my plans don't come out the way I thought? Well, I'd better buy this product or get this insurance. Should the worst happen? Then I'm sorted. Then I'm back. Okay, I'm, I'm back on the rails again. Even adverts for funeral plans for anybody over the age of, of 50. You know, preparing so that you're not going to be a burden on your family when you go. All of this plays on our desire for a carefully controlled and organized future. A kind of future like this, these kind of plans flow from what James will show in a few moments, flows from a worldly wisdom. It flows ultimately from a form of fake religion. And uh, what he will go on to show, and we'll look at this together, is that um, if we're not careful when we think of the future and when we prepare for the future, um, we will end up operating with an arrogant presumption that everything will work out just the way I hope, according to my plan and my desire and my expectations, this arrogant presumption. So let's look for a few moments together then at this text, the, the problem, number one, the problem of arrogant presumption. We're going to look and consider about two religious reactions towards arrogant presumption. And thirdly and finally, how the gospel is the solution to our arrogant presumption about the future. So what is the problem of arrogant presumption? Let's, let's see what James is really trying to get out here. He says this in verses 13 and the first half of 14. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Do you see what James is saying here? He's characterizing the kind of person that thinks to themselves or even says, I'm going to go to this place, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go here, I'm going to make money, and it's going to come exactly as I expect. It's going to happen where I want, it's going to come out exactly how I plan it. That's what James is getting at. Now look, there's nothing wrong, of course, with organizing, with planning, uh, with, 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 with doing business, uh, assuming uh, plans may come about. There's nothing wrong with that, there's nothing wrong with profit, there's nothing wrong with commerce in and of itself. But here's the issue. 
He says in verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And he goes on to say, your life is like a mist. It appears for a little time and then vanishes. You know, sometimes you wake up in the morning and it's, it's, it's uh, mist or fog. It's very heavy in the morning. And, and, and you think to yourself, how can, it, how can I possibly drive to work? It's very thick. But then as the sun rises and, and uh, you know, the light in the sky um, gets brighter, the mist evaporates and then it's gone. And then it's clear for the rest of the day. And James is saying rather like that. That's, that's how our lives are in the grand scheme of things. When, when you lay out eternity in front of you, and, and you see your life, that's effectively what it's like. It is, it is a mist. It is not eternal. It's not ongoing. Life will suddenly clear away or blow away like a puff of smoke. He says, ultimately, there's no real substance on the grand scheme of things. But a problem, of course, emerges, doesn't it? When you, when you consider our culture's uh, response to the future and then what James is very bluntly uh, saying here in this passage. There's a problem, there's a clash, because we are presuming that we will live a long and successful uh, life exactly as we planned, and yet James is saying, your life is a mist. It's here one day and gone the next. And he even says it in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. You, you carry on, he says to people in the church, you carry on as if tomorrow will happen exactly as you plan, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. You're, you're so full of pride, he says, when, when that's your, your, your inbuilt drive. Self-reliant. Self-oriented. You think you'll go on forever? And everything will turn out exactly the way you think. And again, just to emphasize, the problem is not making plans per se. It is not about being strategic or having vision or organization, nothing like that. But the problem that James is getting at here is that you can be so convinced of your future and so highly organized and tightly controlled about your future that you try and get there in your own steam. It's all about you. It's about yourself. And there is no reference to God, his kingdom, his will, his sovereignty over all things. You're operating as if God is not part of the picture. That's the issue that James is getting at. And he says you are arrogant. Arrogant presumption. Living life without reference to God whatsoever. Effectively. That's what we're doing. And what's the harm then we might want to ask ourselves? Why is he so, uh, so down on, on being successful or, or, or doing well for yourself or having high goals or, or high hopes for the future? These things are all very well, of course, until we are reminded in verse 14b that our life is a mist. Because it's okay to, to have these things planned out to the, to the nth degree and to operate all things so that we, you know, we, 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 we get what we want and, and to serve that end, that's all fine. And it's all okay until something happens in life that, that, that comes and smacks us on the sides. It's okay until suffering comes along because you didn't plan for that. You didn't budget for that. It's okay until your health starts to deteriorate and you're not able to reach the goals that you set for yourself in your younger years. It's okay until there's a sudden death or bereavement in your family and suddenly that shifts absolutely everything that you had planned for prior to that. It's okay, in short, until unplanned circumstances come your way. And then you will realize, says James, that your life is a mist. It may be here one day and, and gone the next. And, and then what of your plans? Many of you will know the name of, of Steve Jobs. He's uh, dead now. Um, died a few years ago. 
but um, he is, of course, very famous for um, uh, his company, the, the Apple Corporation, uh, iPhones, Apple Macs, all these um, different devices, um, and, and really did uh, change uh, the shape of human interaction and uh, human communication, in, particularly in the Western world, but now it's a, it's a global phenomenon. The iPhone um, is, is one of his, his greatest achievements, I would, I would argue. Uh, but if you read his book, his autobiography, and other, other books written about him, uh, you, will, you will realize that um, despite his wonderful creative mind and his amazing um, ability to conceive of, 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 of ideas that no one has ever had a true innovator, uh, and to see those ideas through with, with, with intense precision, uh, it, it was also clear from, from Jobs himself and those who knew him that he was actually pretty horrible person at times. He was a pretty terrible husband, that's, that's for sure. And uh, I came across these words, uh, a collection of sayings and, and, and sentences, really, from his last few uh, weeks on Earth. He, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and um, lost a tremendous amount of weight and then um, eventually sadly died. Uh, and here's a few words <coughs> um, that uh, have been uh, put together. He said this, um, as he was coming to the end of his life. I reached the pinnacle of success, he said, in the business world. In, other eyes, in others' eyes, my life is an epitome of success. However, he said, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, wealth is the only fact of life that I'm accustomed to. At this moment, lying on the sickbed and recalling my whole life, I realize that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and become meaningless in the face of impending death. In the darkness, I look at the green lights from the life support machines and hear the humming mechanical sounds, and I can feel the breath of the God of death drawing closer. You see, he said, non-stop pursuing of wealth will only turn a person into a twisted being just like me. What is the most expensive bed in the world, he said, it is the sick bed upon which you will die. You can employ someone to drive the car for you, make money for you, but you cannot have someone take the sickness from you. Material things which are lost can be found, but there is only one thing that can never be found when it is lost, and that is life. These are some of the last words of Steve Jobs. He worked out that your life is a vapor, it is a mist. He figured it out the hard way. Everything was okay, wonderfully successful, until suffering and death, and health, you know, loss of health and death, and unplanned circumstances came his way. But remember, this book of James, or this letter that James has written here that we're examining this morning was written to local churches, to, to to people inside Christian churches effectively sat on pews like us. And again, as we've been seeing every week, James is suggesting that it's possible for us to have faith in Jesus uh, or you know, confess faith in Jesus, uh, to look and sound Christian, and yet we will live like a secular person, like a non-believing person who has learnt to speak a Christian language but hasn't received the Christian new life. Uh, James is pointing out to us that it is possible to have, uh, throughout this whole letter, it is possible to have a lukewarm and anemic faith, quote-unquote, 
but, but, but ultimately the focus of our own lives is, is on our own comfort. The focus of our own lives is on our security, on our own individual progress and our own individual attainment of our goals that we set ourselves to our own glory. For those who follow this kind of religion, this sort of fake version of Christianity, they're, they're not primarily concerned with seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Such people will have a general sort of malaise or, or, or uh, you know, anemia when it comes to their own prayer life. They'll pray when it suits, but, 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 but it's, it's not something that characterizes their devotional life. Such people are not radical in their stewardship of their money or their time or their resources because they're using all of those things to achieve their own purposes that they set for themselves, not to glorify God and strengthen his people. Such people will have a Christian faith on a Sunday, but Monday through to Saturday, they will act as if they will go to such and such a town and trade money, trade and make money, so forth. As I mentioned, Steve Jobs, for all of his success and wonderful achievements, uh, was at times a truly awful person pursuing his own agenda. And so for all of us, if we follow this fake religion that James is doing his best to try and dig out, these, these roots of fake religion, we will find that all else in our, our lives will be subjected to or serve the ends that we want ourselves. People, for example, will become a distraction and annoyance to us. We will dodge rich community and forming rich community because that doesn't serve our purposes and achieve our ends. Instead, it will grow within us a cockiness, an arrogance even, pride, because I've achieved this and I'm getting what I want and I'm getting results and you're getting in my way. It'll stir that within our hearts. Or if we don't get what we want and it doesn't work out the way we hope, we will fall into a deep depression and despair because it doesn't work out the way we hoped. So that's the problem with Arrogant presumption, assuming that things are going to come good the way we hope and set out for ourselves, without reference to God or his people. So let's then think about two religious reactions that we can make to this sort of religious, sorry, this arrogant presumption. Look down at verse 15. Instead, James instructs the churches, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. If the Lord wills. If God wants it, if, sorry, in that context, the Lord is Jesus. If Jesus wants it, and he's Lord, then I'll live my life according to, to what he wills, according to him. But religious people can sometimes go in one or two directions uh, in, in their reaction to this arrogant presumption. First, they might hyper-spiritualize. And second, they might absolutize. Let me explain what I mean. Some will hyper-spiritualize verse 15, and they will use it to excess. They will use it to the extent that we might even become a superstitious comment tacked on as some sort of mantra or magical phrase as if that makes it all better. Ah, if the Lord wills, then I'm going to go and do this, that, and the other thing. Quite often uh, in Christian literature, uh, particularly flyers for certain events or, 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 or you know, things coming up, you'll see the two initials DV at the end. You know, uh, we're going to have a, a special evening together on Wednesday the 11th of March, DV. Uh, and that, that, that um, is, a, is, a, is a Latin term, DV, Deo Valente, if the Lord wills. Uh, 
you know, God willing. Just tacking that on the end as if that makes everything better. But that's not really what James had in mind. There's nothing wrong with doing that, by the way, but that's not really what he had in mind. Yes, let's say if the Lord wills it uh, when we think of our future plans. More important that we, we mean it and live it and live by it. We can hyper-spiritualize it. Taking a step further, uh, we, we, can, we, can, we can be uh, aggressive towards any form of planning or organization or vision casting of the future. We can treat that in our minds as evil or ungodly. We think it's wrong uh, to think of the future as arrogant because James says so in verse 15. We shouldn't make plans. We shouldn't prepare for the future. Uh, you know, some, some people would even advocate not even having a pension or not, not even having a savings and all that sort of stuff because that goes against... Uh, what God is saying here. That's what they would say. But Jesus uh, tells, a, tells a parable that would turn that attitude on its head. Uh, down in Luke chapter 19, uh, Jesus tells a parable of, of the talents. What is a talent? A talent is a, a unit of money or a, a, a weight of money uh, in the ancient Near East. Um, incredibly vast amount of money by, by modern standards. And uh, Jesus tells a story of a master who had great wealth and, and great property to his name. And he went away to a foreign country and he entrusted his wealth to three servants. Uh, to one servant, he gave 10 talents of, of, of money. To another servant, he gave five talents of money. And to the third servant, he gave one talent of money. And he said to his servants, right, I'm away. Um, I wanted to use what I've given you and what I've entrusted to you to, to invest to develop it. I want you to go and create wealth. I want to go, go, <coughs> go and see what you can do with my wealth. And, uh, of course, uh, it says that the, uh, the, the one who's given 10 talents went and invested it, was given 10 more back, return. Uh, and, and the master, when he returned from his, his trip, said, well done, good and faithful servant. Then the one who was given five talents um, made five more with his wealth. And, again, got the commendation from the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. But the one who was given one talent, uh, it says, buried his talent in the ground, didn't want to lose it because he knew his master was a harsh man, and if he lost it, then he'd be in trouble. So he thought, the best thing I can do is just bury it in the ground, not do anything with it. And, uh, of course, the master came back, and he said, you wicked servant, you've not invested what I've given you. You haven't traded it. You haven't even put it in the bank and tried to earn a bit of interest on it, you wicked servant. This is someone who was frozen by the fear of messing up, and so he decided not to do it after all. So what we're not saying here is that we should hyper-spiritualize this and be frozen and not do anything for the future if the Lord wills it. That's one religious reaction. But the second religious reaction is to absolutize uh, what we're seeing here. Um, absolutize. If the Lord wills it, in verse 15, then I can do nothing to stop it. If that's God's plan, then I can't change it. It's a fixed situation. Uh, he's willed it, therefore it's going to happen, they would say, irrespective of, of what I do or don't do. Nothing I decide and, and act on right now will make any difference in the future. So therefore I'll just give off, uh, so give over and do nothing and not prepare. This absolutize this teaching here. Very, very close, of course, to the, um, the Islamic understanding uh, of Allah and, um, and his, uh, this sort of uh, this doctrine or this word uh, in Arabic called inshallah, inshallah, if God wills. And uh, I was chatting to a friend some time ago who used to work in a Muslim country in North Africa. And she told me that uh, this, this is a very commonly used phrase among people sort of uh, dealing with suffering or, or death or, or, or circumstances not working out. They would simply shrug their shoulders and say, Inshallah, 
God wills. Um, suffering, God's willed it. God willed it. Death, inshallah, God willed it. Pain, eh, what can you do? It's this idea of fatalism. But this is not, again, what James is talking about here. He's not, he's not talking about absolutizing this. You know what? God's willed it, so what's the point? We can't do anything about the future. So there are two basic um, religious responses to, to this, um, this teaching. But I, I'm going to argue with you uh, as we come to our third and final point uh, that neither of these are satisfactory responses to this, this, this challenge that James sets up. And indeed, the gospel gives us a solution to this arrogant presumption. So that's our third point. The gospel gives a solution to our arrogant presumption. Neither hyper-spiritualizing and sort of superstitious on one hand, neither absolutizing and just saying, you know what, what's the point? Because God's got it fixed anyway. James gives us a, a third way here. The gospel is the answer to our arrogant presumption. See, when we look at the gospel we realize that, that Jesus is actually <clears throat> the only one who has perfectly obeyed and lived out consistently. Verse 15, if the Lord wills, we'll do this and that and the other thing. He's the only one who's actually managed to pull that off. Of course, when he gave uh, the Lord's prayer to his disciples and they asked him, how should we pray? He said, uh, you know, this is how you should pray. Your kingdom come to God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Jesus, of course, is the only one who actually perfectly managed to desire the will of God, the kingdom of God, all his life. That's what he wanted, and that's what he actually came to provide. We, on the other hand, all of us in this room here, are actually preset to live selfishly. We find, in fact, verses 13 and 14 pretty easy. Uh, we do that naturally to live out. Living life without reference to God, that's what we're talking about here. We find it very natural and easy to live for ourselves, live for our own glory. But yet the weight of being the master of our own destinies is actually crushing. It produces anxiety or it produces arrogance, but either way it is crushing. We can't do it on our own. In fact, we can never live, verse 15 of James chapter 4, out on our own aside from the gospel. Why is that? Why can't we just decide to, to live and, and say, you know what, if the Lord wills it, we'll do this and that and, and just be aware of him. Why can't we do that? Because, as the Bible teaches, uh, when we step back and see the entire story, uh, our, our natural state, left to our own devices, is that we never believe that God's will is really worth living for. We can't ultimately, in and of ourselves, bring ourselves to truly believe that God's will is good and that it's perfect and that really is the path to blessedness and happiness. We can't believe that. We can't truly live like that is correct. And the reason for that is that our sinful nature, our disposition to disbelieve God, was inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. And Genesis 3 shows us that the serpent tempted them to disbelieve God's will. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of that fruit? said the serpent. He portrayed God's will as oppressive, as painful, and as harsh. And so the first parents, Adam and Eve, decided that the serpent's um, portrayal was the right one and God's will and God's word was the incorrect one. And they tried to live without reference to God. 
They grabbed at power. They tried to control their own destiny. And yet nothing could have been further from the truth. And yet they believed the lie of the serpent over the truth of God's word. And they fell. And with them, all of us since then, every single human being has found it impossible to believe that God's will is really good and really right and really life-giving. Jesus, of course, stood in another garden shortly before he was betrayed and handed over to the Romans and crucified. Not the Garden of Eden this time, but the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he was, praying, it says, in agony of soul, greatly distressed. He knew what was coming towards him. And yet he knuckled down in prayer, holding on to the promises of God, trusting. It says, In Luke 22, Jesus withdrew from his disciples about a stone's throw. He knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup of suffering from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's what Jesus prayed. That's what he asked for. Your will be done, not mine. He prayed effectively, your kingdom come. Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you are willing, do it, Lord, but not my will, yours be done. See, Jesus Christ in that garden and and up to the cross and up to the moment of his death, submitted himself completely to God's perfect will, even if it meant going through unimaginable pain, not just physical pain, although that would have been intense, but the spiritual agony of separation from the Father. And yet Jesus in the gospel gave himself fully to God's will. And that, of course, is the only way that we could be freed from our sin and our bondage and our chains to live as the Lord wills. Can you see what Christ has done for you? Can you see how he gave himself to the will of God so that you can follow the will of God? Can you you see how much it cost him? Now, look, if we, if we doubt God's will or, or attempted to disbelieve it, all we need to do is look at the cross and see that God is for us, not against us. The more we look at the splendor and the wonder of the cross of Christ and see that God is for us, the more our hearts are changed and the more motivated that we will be to live, verse 15, fully and freely, if the Lord wills it, living as the Lord wills. Not just throwing in the statement because that makes all the difference, but truly living under the will of God for the glory of God. Just as we close, I want to show you four ways, four um, ways to apply this, that this will actually, um, you know, if you you grasp this and grasp what James is is teaching us here, um, here are four ways that this can be applied in your life. And here they are. They all begin with P. I was on form this week. Providence, peace. You become prayerful and live with purpose. You'll understand providence. You'll receive peace. You'll become prayerful and you'll live with purpose. If you understand this, if you understand that God's will is really good and that you've been set free to follow it and to put his will and desire him above all things, then you will understand providence. What is providence? 
It is his sovereign control over all things. And that control is not oppressive or manipulative or coercive. That control is good. It is beautiful. It is life-giving. It is what you've been created to serve. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it beautifully. I've actually gone to the the trouble of putting it up on the screen because it is so wonderful. If you've never heard of Heidelberg or a catechism, uh, it's a way of teaching teaching the faith, the Christian faith, to new believers and to, to, to children. Um, but it's, it's about 400 or so years old. Um, so it's quite rich, it's quite deep. But this is just one part that always sticks out to me. Heidelberg Catechism is a series of questions and answers. I'm going to read it to you here. I'll stand out of the way. Question 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer is this. This is lovely, right? The almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them, the leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us, not by chance, but out of his fatherly hand. All things. Isn't that awesome? If you understand what James is teaching here in verse 15 and what Jesus has done for you, you will get a grip of the wonder, the encouragement, the strength from God's sovereign care, otherwise known as his providence. Secondly, what we'll do, you will receive peace. Flowing on from this understanding of God's perfect, beautiful, providential will shall come to you peace. Peace that you can feel and experience and know. You will have peace because given that everything has come from his fatherly hand, all things, there is nothing left in life that is outside of his will, nothing outside of his care, nothing outside of his oversight, his fatherly hand. That brings not only tremendous amounts of peace, but also deep levels of freedom because you know that you can't come out of that setup. You can't outdo God. You can't outsin him. You can't mess it up so bad that he is far from you. It just lifts the weight off of you. When you understand God's providence and his loving fatherly providence, it lifts the weight off of you trying to control every detail in your life to the nth degree. It's impossible, but we try it. But when you understand providence, and it is a good providence, the weight that comes off you will be tremendous. Providence, peace. Next thing will happen to you is you'll become prayerful. Flow from verse 15. If the Lord wills, it will do such and such. All things are in God's hands. That means they're not in our hands. Our arrogance disappears. We realize that all power belongs to God. And so instead of trying to grasp onto power and try and manipulate every situation to our own ends, we are characterized by prayerfulness as a people. We acknowledge that all things are in his hands, that he is our father, that all of our future plans may be good to our own vision, but are submitted to him, that are lived for him and to the ends of his glory. And so that makes us prayerful because we realize that we can have hopes and dreams and they're good things that often God gives us. And yet they are not ultimate. God is ultimate. Prayers and dreams and hopes may come, may go, may serve, may not serve, but we should put them to one side under under the sovereign love and care of our Father. And so that means that prayerfulness is our posture, asking God, bringing things before him, our plans, laying them before him, 
for our church, our hopes and dreams, we bring them before God, our family, individually as, in, you know, as, as specific believers in Jesus. All of our decisions, bringing them to God, his will, asking, listening to what he says. Providence, peace. We become prayerful. And finally, we live with purpose. Because then we start to ask ourselves, when we understand this and we understand the gospel, we, under, we start to ask ourselves, what will please God? In this moment, what will please God? That's a great way to make a decision, by the way. What will bring him the most glory? What will please my heavenly father? What relationship, choice am I going to make? Will that bring him joy? Will that bring him delight? Or will that bring him displeasure to my father's heart? The use of my money. Will that please him? Will that extend his kingdom? Will that be used for his glory or will be used for my ends to serve myself? What ways can I live for him? What choices can I make? How can I invest my talents? How can I invest my, my wealth? Irrespective of your capital value and how much money you bring in every month, how can you invest your wealth to the glory of God? How can you invest your time to the service of the kingdom of God and the local church? How can you invest your gifts and your inbuilt abilities to serve God? See how these things all flow from the gospel. This providence, it's a good providence, this peace that comes from the providence, the prayerfulness that therefore is stimulating, the sense of purpose that comes from that. Let's resolve as a community on mission to live as the Lord wills in total dependence on God and yet hearts full of faith and vision for a future with him. Let's pray.